0: I went down to Kerry and I did a couple of races the light, the two hundred and the one hundred, and I probably learned an awful lot down there from failure. Um, in both not finishing the two hundred and the the one hundred I met in naps with Hames towards the end of the race. And I learned through making mistakes in those races and what I had done. And I think that was probably the best thing that I had done in preparation for the Marathon the Saab. Um from a mental standpoint anyways. I'm a little bit from the nutrition side. My nutrition was really well nailed on to the American staff. And you'd be surprised, actually, um, a lot of people were out there and they really weren't tuned in as to what they needed to get through the week. And that actually would surprise me a lot, like for all the preparation, for all the talk and for all the research people might do, sometimes they're not half as prepared as they think they are. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast. Or if it's your first episode, then welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Barry Loftus. Barry is a former cross-malina and Mayo Gaelic footballer. He is now a strength and conditioning coach with a very successful fitness business called Strand Fitness, located in Ballina, County Mayo. And that's in Ireland for anybody listening overseas. And as we record this podcast, he has previously completed seven Ironman triathlons and has completed numerous Ultramarathons, one of those being the Martin des de and that's something we're going to talk about in this episode. But Barry is also aspiring to be a best selling author. Now, he has released a book just in time for the Christmas market, so it's going to be too late for anybody to pick it up as a Christmas present by the time they get to listen to this podcast because I'm away from my house and I'm after leaving my card reader behind, so I can't actually start editing the podcast yet. But anyway, We'll talk about that again. So, Barry, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Now, Barry, we've had a few interactions over the years just through social media. We've never met. We've this is actually the first time we, that we've been talking, isn't it? We it's, it's mainly just through messages. The last time we were chatting was around the time of the Ironman, and y'all, you you knew somebody taking part in that, and
0: that's right. Yeah, Stephen Donnelly was uh, he's my coach actually, uh, and he's uh, he I think he won his age group, or He did very well in the age group. There, yeah.
1: And then we were talking a little bit of your book then afterwards. So everyone has a story. So I want you to tell me a little bit about yours. How did you get to the point where you were at the start line of the Marathon des abs
0: It was quite a journey even getting there. Um, it started off with, um, I was in Dublin at the time. Um, There's a bit of a backstory with, uh, with my third daughter, um, she, we had difficulties in that pregnancy, myself and my wife. And um, I was spending quite a bit of time up in Dublin. And uh, I was training with a couple of guys from line up there. And uh, one of them suggested doing uh, the Marathon to sab which I didn't really know that much about. And um, there was um, a few other guys uh, with me, actually. We um, decided to sign up for it. And at the time, I said I would sign up for it. And um, I would use it as a way of raising funds for a charity called Hughes House. Uh, which is a, a, a charity that uh, helps out um, parents like uh, myself and my wife that have um, issues um, with um, with babies and whatnot that stay in the hospitals up in Dublin and the children's hospitals. So I signed up in November 2018 for the 2020 Marathon to Saab and trained throughout the rest of 18 into 19 and for 20 and then of course uh, Covid came and um, it pulled the pin on the Marathon de Sade. I think I was just starting to taper at the time. Um, maybe it was obviously around March time, February, March time COVID happened. It was just about to taper time for um, that 2020 Marathon de Sade. And that then started a real um, crazy period of the, the race being on and not being on. And um, they didn't put a race on, I think, in October. And um, there was massive problems with that. And um, I eventually got the start line, as you asked, uh, for the marathon de the Saab in uh, 2023, this year, in um, in April. And um, But it took about five years, the guts of five years to get there.
1: You come from a Gaelic football background. Gaelic football being a team sport and running is more of an individual type pursuit. Would you agree with that with the running or, or do you train with people most of the time? Uh
0: do I train with people, is it? No, I would be very... Um,
1: it's kind of hard yeah. to go from one to the other when you're kind of used yeah. to being involved in a sport or activity that's very much social. And yeah, we all know that saying, the loneliness of the long-distance runner. Did you find yeah. it hard to move from a team sport into something that was more of an individual pursuit?
0: Great question. Um, I, I would have been a period of time um out of sport completely and um so I didn't go directly from from team sports into into long distance running. I've been doing Ironmans and stuff and track on probably since about twenty oh eight I started with a Gale Force. So but I quite like being on my own. and um, I'm kind of introverted in training in that like I would have certain people I would train with, but for the most part I actually quite like going off for three to five hours running on my own in around. Very lucky here in North Mayo and um, there's lots of places to go run and run long and long loops. And um, I like being on my own. I like kind of going on those long runs and those hard mornings, hard days, um, isolated days, where some people may find it very hard if they're going from a really social setting, um, if they're involved with a team, um, a group of lads or a group of girls. Um, they might find that aspect quite hard. But I actually, I, I quite enjoy it. I don't mind it. Um, I like the isolation, and I like the challenge of just being on your own. And I like kind of... Um, you mind space and head space of being on my own and because um, I work in a gym environment, my own studio, it's nice to go off at the weekend on a long one and just kind of deload everything that's happening within my own mind and and solve problems or whatever. But um, I think it's quite a nice space to be. Um, it's not for everyone, but I think those that enjoy it really get the ultra running side of things in too.
1: Yes, I, I totally agree with that. Your first ultra marathon was back in twenty nineteen, the Rock and Rolling Ultra, and you you haven't done a lot since then. The, uh, sorry, when well, I don't mean not done a lot. All all that you've done has been very similar. They're they're all events that finish single day. You've done the Kerryway, Way Ultra Light, Connemara Ultra Marathon, Portumna Fifty, and you did mention that when the Marathon des Ab was suggested to you, that you didn't really know what it was. Did you yes. agree to do it? Before you actually checked what the race was about,
0: yes, hundred percent. I had no clue um, about it. I didn't. I, don't, I didn't even read anything about it prior to going. Um, I just kind of got on with it. The only, the only inkling I had was, um De Gast, He's the deck Ironman winner. Did a podcast with a guy who had done it. Whose name escapes me and he talked about his experience in the race and he talked about walking a lot on the race and hiking a lot. I remember listening to him and kind of going, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be running the whole way or the whole time. And I went over, I was prepared quite ignorant in a way in that um, I didn't do much research. Um, and I generally don't. I just like to do my own thing and experience everything myself and go out and do something. Um, the... The social media side of things around the Marathon itself and the groups at the time, the, the Facebook groups and forums, just a bit catty, especially around um, COVID stuff. Um, there was a lot of negativity on their site. So I preferred to kind of stay away from the negativity and some of the advice that has been bandied out. I felt that I was just going to be as well prepared as I could um, physically and uh, mentally and um, obviously take some advice and kit and that. Um, from um, that Barnes lady she she owns a store that's affiliated with the Marathon the sad UK side and um, but for the most part like, I really was not as prepared as others would be prepared as no one ever, absolutely ever said kind of about a race, but that would be me anyway that so would be kind of like that
1: and do you think if you had have known a bit more about the event you might have maybe uh, slowed your decision or changed your mind
0: no, I was really.
1: The reason I'm asking that challenge. is because if you were to believe everything that you read on social media about races like this, they almost sound impossible, and I think a lot of people yeah. get turned off trying something that they might want to do because it's made to appear like it, it it's beyond them. But really, a lot of these events are very doable, especially when you mentioned there you can actually walk quite a lot, and people are reduced to walking quite a lot in these events. So. If you want to do something like this, do your research and give yourself a few little tests along the way, get a few of your own performance indicators before you actually decide that you, you can't do it.
0: Yeah, I think if if you're prepared, it's like the I went down to Kerry and I did a couple of races down in Kerry, the, uh, the light, the 200 and the 100, and I probably learned an awful lot down there from failure um, in both not finishing the 200s and the, the 100 I made in absolute Hames towards the end of the race. And I learned through making mistakes in those races and what I had done. And I think that was probably the best thing that I had done in preparation for the Marathon to stab. Um from a mental standpoint, anyways. And a little bit from the nutrition side, my nutrition was really well nailed on to the Marathon to start. And you'd be surprised, actually, um, a lot of people were out there and they really weren't tuned in as to what they needed to get through the week um, and that actually would surprise me a lot like for all the preparation for all the talk and for all the research people might do sometimes they're not half as prepared as they think they are and um, I may not have as much knowledge about the race and the history of the race and whatnot, but I was really prepared for what I had to do and what I had to do to finish the race and um, but the the apprenticeship I served in Kerry in those three races really gave me the um, stepping stones to complete the
1: marathon. with that. Yes, I actually made a mistake there when I was naming some of the races. You you did the Kerry Ultra Light, that's the shorter one, back in 2020, and then in 2022 you did the, the 100k one. And just as you mentioned there, that's why I want to kind of highlight my mistake, is that it's when you're doing an event like this, that you get to see where the gaps are, in your preparation and the gaps are in your kit and you, you learn what, what you really need. Sometimes what you want is very different to what you need and it's only by going out and testing stuff yourself that you, you realise what, what the essentials are. And when you're going somewhere like the desert, although we're saying it is manageable, but if you have the wrong kit, you can't bore your way out of a problem when you're halfway through a stage on, on day three. If something yeah. if something fails, it's it's failed. It's gone. There's there's no yeah. There's no replacing it.
0: No, like for example, I think that the last on um, the last hard day, of the marathon day, my shorts, which were a pair of red lights, you know, these shorts are supposed to get the seams just evaporated on them, and, and my shorts just fell apart. And it was only for it was actually my mother of all people told me to bring a spare pair of shorts. And I was like, I'm not bringing spare shorts. Like, I have these fancy red light shorts, I don't need them. But then I got a bit paranoid, and I actually brought spare shorts just because my mum told me, and I needed them. Because the, 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 these super, you know, ultra running shorts had just absolutely fallen apart. And this is due to the environment of the desert. It absolutely eats everything up. Every bit of kit from your, I had hocus speed goats, and every everything just got eaten out there. I couldn't believe how the environment treated kits and really good kits. It just it just falls apart. And um anything that's not up to standard just really gets gets pulled asunder. Um be that bags, runners, shorts, um, any other bit of gear gear also.
1: Yes. Uh issues like sand will cause friction. Then if you're sweating you have the salt getting caught up in the fabric, and if you're wearing the stuff over and over again, that you can't wash it to clean it, it is going to deteriorate. And then, if you're wearing gaiters o- over your running shoes, there's also you're also going to be kicking rocks, and there's there's that kind of abrasion that happens to it, and that's what happens to the shoes as well. So yeah, the the stuff yeah. the stuff does break down. Like so, you don't really get much more of a use out of it than one or one or two races.
0: Yeah, like all my gear was, was done for by the end of the the end of the week. I left I left my runners behind. Uh, much of this Hoka speed guts. I think they they recommend the uh hooka I think they're called. They're um um they've got a greater shoe um um toe box on them and there's more um there's more lining around the toes on those. But I went for the the Hoka speed guts and um i uh I got them sent away to the u k for um they put um Belcour around them, and uh, that then you can attach your your gaiters to them um but the ski bo- speed goats worked really well for me. um they were done for by the end of the week, um but I had no problems um but I think that hook and massive day would have worked um very well also um just because of the size of the shoe and the around the toe box. And I think they're they're really suitable for. Uh, the abuse of the desert, that's if you can if you can run in them, because um, everyone is, is quite different. There were some people there that had um, your normal um, run shoes, you know, like say normal trail running shoes. Um, I was quite surprised at the sort of different types of shoes. Some people actually went out there to run, um, like you'd run a marathon at home, and they were wearing shoes like that too, you know. Um, uh, but I think I think you need to go for something really rugged. Um it's it's amazing how stony and rocky and the really sharp stones. Um I think I remember kicked I kicked the stone, the same stone three times and it really hurt my toes. And uh, you could you know, you the the shoes actually get shredded even, uh, the rubber on the shoes from the stones and the rocks and they are quite sharp. Um so I, I wouldn't go up without anything that's really rugged.
1: Well, if somebody had been asking me for advice on what shoes choose to wear, I would have said the Hawker Speedgoat. I'm familiar with yeah. the other shoe that you said just by name. I haven't actually seen it. But that makes perfect sense for what you're saying. And I said, I am aware of it. It kind of has a lighter lug on it, like that. the lug isn't as aggressive as the Speedgoat. I think it's, yeah. it's used for lighter trails. So I'm actually going to try and get a look at uh, that now and when you mentioned the, the gator, can you just explain what the gator is and why you got to use the velcro
0: um well what i would recommend is they um to start off with is that you send your shoes away except this guy in the uk i think his name is kevin bradley and the first year i was meant to do it i sent my shoes off to him and you get them returned and then when it got cancelled a couple of times um, I decided I'd I get it done locally um, but that was a mistake because when I got got it done locally for um, for the Velcro it just wasn't done as well as compared, compared to that guy in the UK so he it, they're done perfectly uh, from over there and then you just attach your um, gaiters to the Velcro on the shoes and people were kind of describing it like moon shoes or moon boots and um, I didn't have any sand Getting my shoes for the duration of the week. And I did treat my feet, which I'll talk about. But I only had one tiny blister on my toe on the very last day, which was nearly like a novelty blister. Uh, whereas there was some guys in our tent, there's one in particular, Aaron from um, Waterford. He was missing the flesh from both soles and both feet by the end of the week. Um, and that's down to a load of different things. But the I think the fact that your shoes, and your gators and the belco need to be perfect to go out there. They can't, be anything done. they can't be done any other way than done professionally. And it's probably one of the most important things to spend your money on prior to going to the American stuff
1: Yeah, you, you won't get away with inferior quality workmanship or gear in an event like this. Like once you've gone a couple of days in, you've know you got to have confidence in what you're using. So I'm going to take note of that name that you actually said for getting, yeah, de- getting developed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that one now. So with the actual race, it goes over five stages. Can you explain the stages?
0: Um, so you start off with, um, I guess every year is different, and they would they would they would operate in the same kind of area around the uh, south and south um, east part of the Moroccan Sahara which kind of skirts close to the um, Algerian border also. Um, this year, um, they seemed to go for a very technical, hard race. And also there was um, there was a serious heat wave um, this year, um, which was, if you remember, around um, April May, there was a heat wave in Spain and Portugal also. And um, so there was lots and lots of issues initially. So the, the actual course... Um, it goes to various um, kind of distances, um, starting in around the 30k mark. Um, but the, the distances, why might not seem that long, especially if you're doing a lot of ultras and stuff, so there's a fair amount of climbing in them. So you might do a 30k, but there might be a couple of what they call jebels, which are mountains to climb. And they're just absolutely horrendous um, because you could be in anything from 40 to 50 odd degrees of heat having to navigate not only a course of 30K, um, they might go 30K, 36K, 33K, um, and also they had a marathon stage, which is 40 odd K. um, And then they have a long day, which was for us was just about 90K, um, which is like a double day. Um, We had a rest day and um, after the marathon day, you finish with the 9K, what's called a charity stage. But I think for next year, they've done away with that now. So when you finish the marathon, that would be the last day. Um, the charity stage is is timed, but you get your medal on the... We got our medal on the, the marathon day. and It just seemed like absolute cruelty um, to do the 9K the following day. Um, so what many people do is to kind of walk it with their tent mates. Um, but it's frustrating because then others kind of um, race it. So For example, I think I finished 296th overall after the marathon. Um, but dropped back down to three hundred and thirteen or something after the final nine K charity stage um, because a couple of guys uh, raced or whatever, but we opted to, to walk it as a um as a team as a as a tent um rather than race it.
1: Okay, and maybe that's why they have taken it out for next year. That seems a a bit unfair really. If they're calling it a charity stage, they, they shouldn't really include yeah. it in the overall rankings
0: yeah it's just it, but it's done away with now, so it's not an yeah. issue going forward. but um, I thought I wanted to do as well as I can, but it was more important after what we've gone through the week you really a you know, a massive part of the marathon the sad, is to is to bond with your teammates. Yes. and we um we were very lucky with a couple of really experienced guys there, and they um set up teams meetings and um whatsapp groups and whatnot and um we created a strong bond prior even going to the desert And by the time we got to the desert, um you know, we really got really close. We're still very close as a group. and uh, We're in regular contact with each other. And um, as much annoying as it was to drop those spaces and go into the 300s, it was more important to walk that uh, together. And um, it's actually quite memorable in a way. And um, we walked through the, what's called the Marzouga Dunes, which are the highest dunes in Morocco. These things are mountains of dunes um, that bring you from the desert into um, into a, into into a town um, where you finish the race, and it's literally desert into into concrete. It's a crazy way that the desert just kind of releases you yeah, at the last moment into um, an urban environment, which is quite strange. Um, to be honest,
1: I would guess that most people thinking of a race that's called the Marathon of the Sands would be thinking it's all sand dunes. And when you mentioned crossing over the the mountains and ending up in a village of concrete, that, that sounds very, very far from what the perception will be. Was the desert what you expected when you arrived there?
0: No, not at all. Um I expected more sand. You know, we did get lots of sand, um, but it was just... The way I describe it would be like it was seas thousands of years ago, and you see an awful lot of um, um, fossils everywhere. It's just fossils in all the rocks, and where it was at the bottom of the seas, and where you arrive into these great flats, and they can be so flat and so hot, and you're surrounded by huge kind of mountains either side. and the topography is just, it's just unbelievable and so vast. And I think that's why the, stay, the marathon the sab really stays with you, which I wouldn't have expected all this. I wouldn't have expected to dream as much as I do about the marathon. The sab. And it's because it's so, it's so vast that the mind has to really look far and it really opens up your mind a lot when you're out there, much like if you're on, at the, in the sea and there's nothing on the horizon. It's quite similar. Um, but you could have a vastness. And then you could have dunes or you could have really rocky mountains. It, the topography changed a lot. Um, but I'm very grateful that it wasn't all very sandy because during the long stage, we went through sand dunes and it, was, um, it took 15 minutes to walk one kilometer. It was horrendous how much time it took. It just it takes so much time to walk through really sandy dunes. And it's really fine sand. It's not like if you're in and in Sago, um walking down the bottom of the beach. Um, the sand is quite fine and different and um, it's like wading through marsh t- at times it, it takes a lot of energy
1: and isn't that a great memory because with those sand dunes you really have to see them and feel them and suffer them to really appreciate what what they're like and if you could yeah. turn back the time you wouldn't want to remove them from that stage the sand dunes are just incredible aren't they
0: yeah, there's, there's there's nothing. As much as I suffered and as a horrendous it, is, it was, it would be nothing I would take out because that is they just create this amazing experience that lived for, with me forever. And, um, and there's, there's so many. Just like even on the long day, um, I didn't actually write about it, but it was my final checkpoint, and um, it was just starting to get a little bit bluey. I think I was about 22, 23 hours racing at this stage. And it was just like like a a film set of Star Trek or Star Wars or something, a real quirky, stony outcrop on this lunar kind of landscape. And it's so hard to explain, but the imagery and the scenes that you saw, um, remembering them, it's just so strange and so wonderful at the same time. But there's nothing, obviously, in Ireland that you want to see that's like it. And I don't think there's many places in the world that would have that sort of a scene. And it was just such a common, you just got so used to it at the end of the week, all these different really weird, um, parts of topography. And I remember on the, on the long day also, um, at the nighttime, because it's, there's no, um, artificial light. And um, at one point it was people lying down looking up at the stars. Um, and it was just, it was just crazy. It was just beautiful. But we're mad too to be in such a suffering, and people just taking a moment there to to lie back literally and, and look up at the stars and enjoy it and take it all in.
1: Yeah, one of one of those real life moments that again you have to experience. And I'm just going to take a moment now to mention that when when you were talking there and you you mentioned something that you didn't write about, just to mention your your book. Half of the book is kind of devoted to your experience in the race, and you do talk through all the different different stages. So if anybody is thinking about doing the race next year, it's probably worth picking up a copy of the book. It gives a good insight. And I'm sure listening to you now, there's a good honesty in the preparation and how you actually uh, manage the race. So I think this will be well worth a read. And when I talk about managing the race, there is a requirement to have a minimum of 2,000 calories per day. How did you manage your food and what did you bring?
0: Okay, so I brought um, expedition foods as my main meal um, and I went for... Now, can, uh,
1: I, can I just eat- pause there for one second, right? Sure. Yeah. Just so I don't forget this. When you mentioned expedition food, so that's uh, dehydrated food. Yes. Did you have any problems with your gut when you come back from the race after using dehydrated food for a week? Did I
0: have any problems? I, do you know what? I did actually. Um, I actually did have
1: the constipation stuff like that.
0: Yeah, no, not like that. It was just probably the runs and stuff. But okay. I just put that down to um, um,
1: your body it, getting it, used it, to it, proper yeah, food again. Body,
0: yeah, yeah, there's been so much of that out there and the heat and that. I I didn't take it. I just thought it was part of coming back. But um, it definitely wasn't plain sailing coming back. Yeah. If sure. you're
1: using dehydrated food and you're also dealing with your own dehydration, what can happen is the food can draw extra fluid, if, if it's not hydrated properly, that you want kind of a nice texture for eating it. But if it's not hydrated properly, it will actually draw water from your body. And what can then happen is, like over the course of the week, it's having a, a, kind of an accumulated effect. Then when you go back, you can actually suffer a lot from constipation and that so it, it's suggestion for anybody who has spent a yeah, week or two up, weeks yeah. on dehydrated foods yeah. to start taking stuff like prunes in the morning or maybe prune juice something that will kind of work as a natural laxative to kind of get your body back moving again make sure to get the yeah, fluids into your whatever so I'm at yeah well I'm at the interrupt you there now but I would probably have forgot to say that later but that that's kind of part of the aftermath of the race so anyway go yeah. back to your food expedition food yeah I had
0: expedition food uh, I think it was called vegan couscous and um, I had got them for 2020 originally so I had and they're with a four year best before them so I had some of them from 2020
1: you weren't tempted to eat them for your Sunday dinner uh, no, no. <laughs> probably because
0: they're 12 I think they're 12 pounds I think they're twelve pounds a packet.
1: At twelve pounds, uh, I'll be trying to bring some back with me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was pretty expensive, and you have to get so many of them. Like, so it's it's a lot of money, and it's an expensive race. So, um, no, I had them from before. I had to top them up. I got a couple of um, one or two extra, and I tried before to see how I tolerated them prior to going out and all that, and were fine. I had expedition foods. I had um, um, I had some protein powder, which I couldn't tolerate when I got out there. Um, I had some green tea bags. I had some um, porridge, um, which I actually sounds found pretty hard to tolerate also. And I got these cliff block bars, cliff block cubes. I got a box of these, and I think I only had about three or four. I ended up giving them away or throwing them away towards the end. I'd, I think it was the heat, John. I, the heat is just so, if, if the effect of the heat on the body, there's no acclimatizing for it. Um for all the preparation in the world, you do not know how your body's going to react to being out there and food. And I was lucky that the dinners worked and I was getting um, 2000 calories or whatnot in those dinners. Um, but on the long day, I would get nauseous the day before the long day. And I was having issues with uh, nutrition. And because I've got the I had these um, sachets all. And uh, what are they called? They are the um, tailwinds. Sorry, tailwinds. And um, so I had, I had 18,000 calories going out. You need 12 to 14,000, I think. And um, but I And they checked that before. Yeah.
1: So they checked that before the race actually started. So if anybody's listening in and wondering why I mentioned the minimum of 2,000 calories, that's a requirement. Yeah. It's part of your mandatory kit, and you have yeah. to you have to go. Uh, and get that check before you actually start the race. Yeah, they, right. they
0: they say they're gonna check us, Um they didn't really check our bags but
1: But they do check you know, it before before that. the race starts, don't they? I can remember that.
0: No, the the way that there were talk of them were checking or whatever and weighing it, but they didn't really check it. However, your man Rashid Al Morabiati was disqualified this year and he was disqualified because he didn't have his um the, the, the proper amount of food he was meant to have on him and I heard rumors that they found yogurt or something in his possession so um that's why he was disqualified for the race he wasn't um he wasn't doing the, the food stuff properly so you know next year will they weigh them and will they check them individually? I don't know but you're going to need the food anyways I think to to be covered I don't think it's, I think it's pretty foolish if you weren't covered with enough calories. And one thing I would say, and it was advice that was given to me prior to going out, but I got sick before I went out and I actually I kind of just got a bit burnt out with everything. Um is to mix your food types that you bring with you. So I had cliff block bars, tailwinds, the expedition foods, and um, porridge and the protein and protein powder, sorry. And someone told me to bring peanuts. I, I never brought a couple of packs of peanuts. If I had brought a pack of peanuts per day, it would have been like cuisine out there um and simple things like that to to, to kind of mix your food you don't know how you're going to react to it i couldn't um on the the long day i couldn't take in any food i didn't eat any food on the long day whatsoever um because i kept vomiting Uh, i even started vomiting water up towards the end of the long day um so I think my body, I couldn't even get a cliff block and jelly into my mouth. My mouth, start, my body would start retching if I put anything like that in my mouth. I don't know why. Um, so if I had something or if I, my food had been more mixed, I may have had more luck getting nutrition in on the long day, which is 90K. So I had no nutrition whatsoever for that 90K. And um, that was a tough day.
1: Yeah, you need different foods and different flavours. If you can't mix the foods so much, you mix the flavours. Because what you're talking yeah. about there is like flavour fatigue, where you just get sick of having the same thing all, all the time. So you need something to spice it up. When I'm actually travelling, I would often bring a bottle of Tabasco sauce or just... Uh, it's yeah. a jar of black pepper just to change the taste of the food a little bit. So something oh. as simple as that can make a difference and then maybe some kind of an electrolyte tab that just flavours the water a little bit although that's, electrolytes can I had be electro- quite yeah, sick I had electrolyte tablets.
0: Uh, I had them and that was what saved me in the long day. I had um, water with electrolytes and I think that's what got me through the long day because I had no... And there's some calories in those electrolytes. And um, that got me through the long day. But if even if you bring um, a little my the my wadi sports thing,
1: yes, perfect. That was
0: given the water. Uh, yeah, that that was somebody suggested that, and we're out there worked really well. Also.
1: And what about water? How do you manage your water?
0: So you're given an allocation per day, um, and you're, there was a bit of an issue with the water with them out there. Again, I'll bring you back to that kind of heat wave that they had in the desert. So the handbook stated that we're going to get, um, at certain um, stages, or CPs, um, a litre and a half, and the next CP you get three litres or whatnot. But that kind of changed after day one with, with huge problems with a, a lack of water. Um, so the, we were given an allocation per day of six and a half litres um, that you would get in an even, and that had to last you until the uh, first CP of the next day. And then you would get three litres per CP. Um but I think there were there issues. They were telling us one morning that we were getting enough water, but by that evening they had changed the goalposts again and they actually gave us more water that evening. I think we got an extra allocation um because there was so much there was so much issues with people getting dehydrated and whatnot. Um but you would you like you would be using every drop of that six and a half liters you got that evening. Um you know, by the time you kind of um rehydrated, um cooked, you know, drank some more that evening and got your bottles ready for the next day, there was it was pretty much that six and a half was gone. There was a very little left in it.
1: Right. And six and a half litres sounds a lot, but it's it's not a lot in those conditions. And if you're having to ration out your water, in some ways you end up depriving yourself of what you actually need because you can't always drink to thirst and then the water is also needed for hygiene, yeah, and it's also needed yeah. then for rehydrating your your food, so for the nutrition yeah. as well. so everything relies on water and actually I had actually mentioned to somebody as well that when you go to somewhere like the Sahara desert and you have to carry your water, you then realize the importance of it, and you get to realize how lucky we actually are back here that we yeah you can leave the tap running when you're brushing your teeth now i'm not I'm not saying to do that, but. We can do that, and we can drink the water yeah, from the tap. Yeah. But when you're really in in the desert and you have a bottle of water and you're trying to get every last drop of that into you, you know you do really get to appreciate the value value of it. Uh,
0: and also the water, um, you can imagine it, it gets quite heated because there's no cover. Um, so if you're coming into a CP, um, sometimes you're receiving uh, three litres of water that is pretty hot. Like you could have had a nice cup of tea. Um, it's that hot. And that then has an effect on the body. You're drinking hot water um, when you're really hot and, and in pretty bad shape, trying to get your heart rate down and to cool off a little bit. So absolutely everything is kind of working against you. Um, and it, 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 it sounds so simple, but I remember there were these two scouts guys in a tent and they were great cracks. Is in a CP tent. staying, accusing the organisers of literally heating up the water that they had a kettle on in, in one of the, in their Land Rovers because the, the water was that hot. Um, it, was, it was it was insane and it really had an effect on me uh, trying to rehydrate on the marathon day on the last hard day. And it, it was really wobbly for about an hour. Um, I thought I wasn't bothered, but I just managed to get through it.
1: For someone going into a race like this, how important do you think it is to be resilient.
0: it's all about resilience. You're just it's just resilience is, is basic. It's resilience is your is as important as your runners. Um you know, um a couple of guys in our tent and they got sick and they couldn't finish the race and um they're gonna have to go back out and do it again. And they were resilient. Um Johnny was resilient right up until the last day, but he was violently ill, he had to pull out. So, you know, resilience might even be enough. You, you need a bit of luck, too. Um, so, I, like, with a couple of guys, with was 30% dropout in our race. and our race, so it, was, um, it was probably the highest percentage dropout they've had ever. And there was um, a lot of military guys, a lot of really tough characters um, had to pull out. And, you know, toughness isn't enough. Um you need to have a lot of things, and to have a lot of luck all your way too. So, um, I don't think anyone's going to go out there and and think they can tough it out, or that they're tough stuff, or anything like that. I think you need a lot of luck. You need to be a little bit ruthless and um, have a massive dose of resilience too to 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 kind of really use to get you through the, the week.
1: Yes, uh, because it's it's a really stressful environment, and stress is kind of I suppose relative to. The, the, the person like for somebody who who's, is living you know a relatively soft and easy life even something as small as maybe getting a puncture in the car on a motorway would really mess up the day that would be in panic stations whereby someone else it's just a case of I know of a spare wheel in the back pull over change the change the tour and go about my day and that's the end of it they mightn't you know even mention it again it happens all the time. But for somebody who is not used to those little, little things, being in an uncontrollable environment and maybe having to share a tent with people that you don't know and everybody's kind of fighting for their corner, you don't know where your gear is and you're having to manage your space, it can be a really challenging environment if if you're not used to, suppose, dealing with those kind of situations. And I suppose resilience is is very very important and just as I mentioned your earlier races there you kind of build that resilience by doing these events so even if you you feel that you're somebody who's not that tough you can actually get that by going out and hiking on the hills and taking part in races that you feel a struggle to finish and you might have to walk a bit or be out uh, doing doing a race or training and it starts raining and you just suck it up and you keep going so resilience is something that can be learned. So, although these are challenging races, if somebody wants to maybe try and do something like it, uh, go out and do something smaller. Eat a couple of mackerel before you decide you want to eat a shark.
0: Yes, um, I mean, it's, it's one of those uh, influences, or whatever they say, but callous in the mind. I think to, to callous your mind with with races and with challenges, and, and build yourself up. And um, to be able to draw on these moments and and to get through them and um, and to keep one foot going in front of the other and like there are points where I just thought it was was the hardest some of the hardest moments of my life and 43 in a couple of weeks and it's like climbing 20 percent gradient in 50 odd degrees uh, on a huge sand dune, a sand dune or a jebel or whatnot and you really are drawn on absolutely every bit of reserve that you have. And um if you have that and you haven't done any ultras, well good luck to you, go out and give it a go. But if you feel you need to um you need to start somewhere, start with your your ultras around Ireland and, and build that and put yourself out in those situations where you're out in the middle of the night doing a race or a training race or even hikes yourself, just get uncomfortable being, get uncomfortable and get comfortable being uncomfortable. And yes. um all these experiences will certainly help you. Um in races like, which was my first multi-stage marathon
1: race, um like the marathon stab. And maybe go out and practice your camping skills, spend the night in the tents. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah I f- think so, yeah. Yeah, get yeah. the feel where it's like unpacking a bag and packing it again. And speaking of bags, I'm going to talk a little bit about the kit. Now, you mentioned your running shoes, which to me yeah. are probably the most important part because if you lost all your kit, you still need the footwear to get you out of trouble, get you back to yeah. safety. I suppose the building of the kit is your backpack because you have to carry everything in your backpack. If your back, if it won't fit into your backpack, you can't carry it. What backpack yeah. did you use? Um, it was an arm. It's
0: called O M. know how you pronounce it.
1: Um, was yeah, I, my, I know that bag, and I found that bag to be uncomfortable around the shoulders. I found the strap very, very, uh, very narrow. Yeah, and it kind of slipped a bit. When you said that, because
0: I had um. The first day was like I had two golf balls on my um, upper trap um, where the bag straps were. It was quite uncomfortable and I had uh, a cotton t-shirt stuffed um, around my shoulders to take the pressure off um, where the straps were. Um, But apart from that, and obviously your bag gets lighter, the bag actually did quite well and it's it's still fine. It's a good bag. Um, But I... I had no extra kit I bought absolutely nothing I only bought bare essentials I didn't even bring a pillow um, well,
1: so what, what do you ha- wait, 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 Hold on hold on What do you mean you didn't even bring a pillow What do you want a pillow for Is is that exactly. part of the kit list now Well there
0: would be some that would have had I might have to edit
1: this out. I might have to edit this Oh you, you didn't I said if you brought a pillow now I would have edited that out But we, we, <laughs> we, we can continue blow, yeah, blow up maths okay
0: some guys that have had blow up mattresses and blow up pillows, and I'll tell you one thing, after a night or two, when you're using your arm as a pillow or your bag as a pillow, and the guys there with blow up mattresses and pillows and whatnot, you do get quite envious. But yeah. I just went for as lean as possible, nothing extra whatsoever. Um and I had my kit came in at eight point four kgs.
1: Oh, um, that's so very light.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I did go very light. I went for no frills on anything, um, and I did tough it out, and it, it was great, and it worked out, and all that. I, I would have been nice, like as I know, like it would have been nice just to have, I think, something comfortable for your head. For me, anyway, I used my arm I was quite uncomfortable to sleep, and I wouldn't have slept the whole night through every night. I kind of got sore about my lumber and my hips. Um, the desert floor is quite obviously hard, and all I had was this, um, uh, like a foamy mattress thing. And um, it's like a foil mattress, and um, it worked, but it, it, there was no comfort there whatsoever. Do you know, it's, it is pretty sore, it's pretty tough going, um, but it just about worked.
1: Well, you're not the ideal person to be talking about kit lists with. So, now, although I'm laughing or make joking a joke about having a pill on a blow up mattress, yeah, there is a reason for those as well, because when you're on a low calorie intake, and you're burning a lot of calories, so there is an energy deficit. And then at night time, it gets really, really cold in the desert. That's something that people who haven't been there don't realize. It didn't
0: us, so, though. Yeah. Actually, it didn't get cold for us. Okay. We were, we, were, we, were, we were lucky in that sense to stay quite warm at night. So, um, and we had our, I had a down sleeping bag, um, and that was fine. Sometimes you kind of sleep with your your legs outside the bag. It was fine.
1: Oh right. Okay. It,
0: yeah, but see, our race is on after Ramadan. Our race is quite late this year, um, and with obviously hotter. But if you're, the race can be on earlier in, um, in kind of March or April, and it will be a bit cooler then. Um, so you may need your down jacket and down bag. But a down jacket will take up a lot of room in your bag. Yes, it does. Down um, is very yeah. bulky,
1: but yeah, there, there's warmth in 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 the bulk. And although it's bulky, it's not it's not very very heavy, but If you're in an energy energy deficit and then you're going to bed at night and if your sleeping bag isn't warm enough, your body starts to shiver to raise the core temperature. And if you haven't got the energy in you, it becomes harder to actually get that kind of response where your body's trying to heat itself up. If you're not warm enough and you're not comfortable enough, you're not going to sleep well. And sleep is when the the repair happens. That's when the recovery happens. So... It can make a difference to your race if you kind of get a good night's sleep, if you have a a good, comfortable night's sleep. But there's also the trade off in that the more you carry, it's extra weight that's in your bag during the day. So you'd also, that in itself creates an extra energy demand. Yes. So Um, you really have to have the balance. And when I would be looking at a kit list and I use the bag to kind of, there's the mandatory stuff that you have to put in. And then there's the other stuff that you make yourself like, a, a bit more comfortable. But when you're putting the stuff into your bag, I would always kind of use the methodology that if in doubt, you leave it out. Yeah. Take what you need and try to minimise the actual weight that you have. Earlier this year, I was in a desert race and had, the man, had all the mandatory kit, which, of course, includes a first aid kit. But I didn't have a first aid kit that was sufficient for the environment I was going into and I was running with Sinead Kane Sinead hit a rock and she fell busted in the open needed stitches I didn't have what I needed inside the first aid kit to provide the necessary first aid that that was needed so it was a bit of a panic situation so I exploited a loophole there by having the minimum required to pass off as a first aid kit but if you had have asked me do you have a first aid kit sufficient for the environment you're going into? I'd have, I've would had to say, uh, had said no. And I got away with this for years, just carrying the minimum amount. I said exploit yeah. the loophole and then I was cut out. So that has well, kind of please, changed because, uh, my view. So go on, you, you go now. Go. Yeah, because I'd actually listened to your podcast that time.
0: Oh, and, okay. Uh, I actually, yeah. And I actually made um, changes to my first aid kit. Okay, right. I've got, yeah, I've actually brought um, ample um stuff with me and also like medication so i went to my
1: gp so i have a uh, listener and yeah <laughs> yeah you do I mean.
0: <laughs> and, you, and, lear- and obviously learning from it but, uh, <laughs> when you described that i kind of went because i would i would have had the bare minimum um all first aid stuff and i went okay this this sounds bad so um not only did i get um a better first aid kit but i also went to my gp and my gp gave me some really good scripts for how much we're all needed for um one for like for bites. I got a bad bite and um, uh, stomach and uh, motilium and um, just all the it's all the bits and pieces too. But it was just really that that podcast actually really sharpened my mind up to okay I need to be covered here for everything and everything I got I used um, as regards all the prescriptions. Um, but thankfully I didn't cut anything um, or have any need any, any stitches like your your partner had that time.
1: Brilliant. And just as you mentioned Motilium and that, stuff like that is also needed for after the race. So when you finish the race, you get back home. That can be a difficult time as well, because in your case, you spent a couple of years waiting to get to that start line. So there's a lot of time and effort goes into that. And all those years that have led up to that moment then suddenly have gone in the space of a week and then you're on your way back home. So it is quite difficult. You mentioned in your book about the post-race blues. Yeah. What was it like coming back?
0: I I would have expected to have greater post-race blues, but I think that the experience of the marathon and the Saab was so um, positive in a way for me that um, I came home with a greater appreciation or a better appreciation for life than I had. Um, I did mention about coming home to my wife, my kids, my dog, my memory foam mattress, uh, lying on the desert floor really, uh, with with absolutely no phones and technology and nothing really, was a great experience. And I was just very grateful for everything I have. And I came home with a massive appreciation for everything that I have and how lucky I am. So uh, previously with Ironmans and stuff, I'd be only home and you'd be getting a bit sad about stuff. And next year you're signing up to another Ironman because you want that kind of hit again. But I, I wasn't like that after American was Um I did have little goals I wanted to do, but I found for the most part that how lucky I am and all I have. And um, when you see an awful lot of people making their way through these areas and um, looking for a better life, and there we were trying to challenge ourselves, um, you know, for our own egos or for whatever, um, I, I think it just kind of showed me... It's, especially how how lucky I am. Not anyone else, and not but being living in the West or living in Ireland or anything, just how lucky I am. And because of that, I didn't have the normal blues I would have had in previous races in previous years. And um, so it was different in that sense.
1: And have you signed up for anything since then? I know you were planning on doing uh, the Ballycastle half marathon. Did you do that? I...
0: I didn't because um, I got, well, I'd been struggling with injuries throughout the year and it came to a head and it was a bit of a learning, actually. I think as if um, I keep fit, I keep strong, Um, I'm a yoga instructor too, I think I keep supple. But I learned that the connective tissue, the ligaments and tendons um, about the hips and um, connecting to femur, Um, I wasn't paying proper attention to that part of the body and those systems and I got really stiff in these areas and um, I learned that um, about keeping these areas as supple as the musculature and whatnot and because of that um, I went through a period of being in a lot of pain running and um, I had to pull out of that um, cage of course half and um, I'm actually still rehabbing and coming out of a rehab now and um I'm hoping to do um, maybe the Valencia marathon next December um so I give myself as much time to get right for it um rather than doing spring or autumn marathons. So I'm being very patient, which isn't like me and um that's because of um not the abuse I give myself because I think I look after myself pretty well but more so um being mindful of this aspect of my body which is the the connective tissue and making sure that's as as supple as possible and keep it as well as possible.
1: Towards the end of your book you mention a quote from Rich Roll that says we overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years and over the next 10 years it says you look forward to becoming a a beginner again and I know that you you are also you're still studying and training as well so have you heard of the concept of the of Shoshin from uh, Zen Buddhism, meaning the beginner's mind?
0: I, I know of the beginner's mind, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that particular concept, but I, I do, I like it. I like being yeah, a beginner. Well,
1: it's, it's something that came to mind through some of our interactions. Just every so often, there'll be one or two messages back and forth. Yeah. And that is something that, that came to mind. So I'm... I'm looking forward to following the story and I kind of think that's a good way to end. Unless you have anything else to add, what do you think?
0: No, oh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, we are, we're We're I'm in a, another, I'm on another journey for sure yeah. I'm looking forward to, 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 to doing some more stuff and more events and, and learning more for sure and it, it's heading, it's heading somewhere those that want to know I have to read the book and I will get there but yes. it's more the journey and the process um, of getting there is
1: the fun part. Yeah, because when I kind of looked at your background there and I seen you coming from the Gaelic football, was, was where you more or less started. And then you kind of have to begin again to become a triathlete. You have to begin again to become an ultra-runner. Now, there are, you know, there are an intersection with them all in that everything kind of trains the heart and lungs. So there, there is that kind of you know fundamentals of fitness but everything has its kind of specifics and football being very much skill based and yeah they are all very very different and you've gone through quite a few disciplines over the last few years with running cycling swimming football and then ultra running again being a step up from running you could say so it's it's quite interesting yeah quite a journey i think i just um i
0: don't want to take too much of time but I have noticed one thing and that's the the buzz of sport and the the buzz of everything and I noticed the differences in different sports and the uh, the buzz that they give. And I'm involved with a strength and conditioning coach now for a club called Arder, they a junior team, and I can't get over how enjoyable it is to um we won a game last year, early last year and we hadn't won in a long time. And the high I was on after we won that game and this club aren't even my own club. They're, they're a neighbouring parish. And I've never got that high from doing a race or even the marathon, The sab. It's just a different kind of a high. It's very hard to explain. And I guess with all these um, sports and events and journeys, I think I'm still chasing that um, that both of that high that you get with team sports when you're playing as a young person and um, always kind of searching or trying to find it or finding different um, highs from different sports. And I think that's what kind of drives me a little bit. And it's really interesting to to see and experience um, different modalities and, and what they bring. And um, that's the journey for me, and it always will be.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's a shared high rather than the individual high that you're getting from doing, doing your own race. And sometimes you might feel that maybe it's not right to be celebrating your your own winnings. It's easier to celebrate what somebody else is doing, but yeah, that's really something that is really good and important with team sports, especially with something like Gaelic football, where it can kind of lift the whole community, like the the parishes yeah. sharing in the success, because with football, like people refer to the football team as we, it's not them, so there yeah. there is an involvement yeah. with it. So, thanks again for agreeing to do this. And it was thank nice you. to finally chat to you and I'll, I'll hopefully be passing through Ballina and I'll pop in and say hello. Oh,
0: by the way, I'm crossing my line, man. Um, oh, across thank my Thank you line. very much. Uh, yeah, it's great. I'm business in Ballina. But um, no, I appreciate it, John. And thanks very much for yourself. It's been great life and uh, been very helpful for me um, and for a lot of people. So keep up the good work and keep us all informed, please.
1: Well, thanks very much. And for anybody that's listening in, if you enjoyed this, you might consider leaving a review, passing on to a friend, and until next time. Thank you.